All right. Kicking dirt. Mike and Adam, we're back. Back at it. It's, Today's July 6th. Holy it's cow. It's been a while, Adam. We've, where, we've been where, out. Where have you been? <laughs> I think we've both been out in the fields looking oh. at things. It's kind of weird that when you're out in the field doing what we do, you can't sit in the office and record <laughs> podcasts. And, you know, that's important to be out in the field, too, because... You know, when that crop is growing, coming out of the ground and emerging, and you got to take some early note, uh, when that train's left the station, you can't go back and observe that again. So it's it's important for us. You got to wait 365 days to do it again. If you miss that corn or beans coming out of the ground, you missed it. Yep. yep. Got to keep our day job on that aspect of it. Yeah. Let's start off with what have we been doing? We've been What, what do we do besides make podcasts? We look at crops. I mean, you know, the corn is coming out of the ground and observing early growth, bigger leaf angle, canopy closure, and walking plots, looking at high pH. Uh, I've been out way out west, actually looking at Goss's wilt resi- resistance already uh, as that disease is cropping up. So, you know, just characterizing products this time of the year. So we know how to position them to for their maximum potential. It is very important, but at the end of the day, we I get the question all the time, what's it matter? What's it matter what the leaf angle is? What's it matter how fast it came out of the ground? What's it matter how quickly it's growing now? You know, because when you sit down to to really place a product for a customer, I want to know the yield. What's the yield potential of this particular crop, this hybrid? Yeah. You know, that's what they're looking at. Well, Hate to say it, but everything that we just talked about goes into yield, how it fits in the environment, the environment that you're in. And every year is different. So you try to look at the consistencies. Growers ask, are, are you just breeding hybrids with an upright erect leaf angle or ones that are semi or whatever? And really, the, the, the deciding factor is a lot about where they're going. But yield and, and characteristics are so important in that, that yield is driving everything. I mean... If it's uh, yielding well, we're not going to bring out a hybrid because of its leaf angle. It's going to make it in our lineup, <laughs> and we'll we'll position it after that. But if it yields, it's got brittle, it's got gosses, it holds onto its ear, it's coming. Root development, very important. So we've been looking at a lot of roots here. Certain hybrids have different root structures. Uh, we talked about that in previous podcasts too, the efficiency of the roots. You can see a lot of that stuff, and then it comes back to you want those hybrids that can perform in diversity in, in different environment year over year, how that's going to perform. We're looking at corn at the two and three leaf and four leaf stage and how we're just rating them. And, and some of them are really, really strong out of the ground and they got a good early vigor. And there might be one that's maybe slower and more uniform. And then as it gets to that, about that knee high stage, some of these just take off. They might've been slow out of the ground and then they just, whew, they just are growing like crazy and they, they stretch out and they're the tallest thing in the plot and complexions of hybrids change as the year goes on too. even their, the, the way they uh, take off and grow. You know, when we're in this vulnerable stage, not that we're getting a lot of rainstorms and windstorms, but uh, having a more compact plant, stable hybrid with nice root system, uh, that ain't all bad as far as no. resisting no. windstorms. That's, that's the thing, you know, today's the 6th of July, right? We got about 10 days in here, pretty vulnerable time frame, root lodging, brittle, all of those things come in right before tassel. And that's really the why of a lot of what we look for when growers are asking, you know, what's it, what's it matter? You know, the roots, what's it matter on the 
the early growth? What's it matter on where the node set, you know, your replacement's going to be? Uh, and a lot of it comes down to it's got to leverage itself through those environmental conditions and, and knock on wood, pray that we don't have these big winds and storms and heavy saturated soils when stuff comes through. But, you know, even the guys out east found out that the wind can blow, you know, at any given time last year and, and root structure and lower stock strength this time of year is important. Yeah, the portfolio, the entire portfolio is in a lot better condition as far as having stable hybrids that can handle a lot of wind and not saying anything isn't vulnerable on any given day, but it, it certainly uh, is a lot better conditioned as far as resisting that on the roots and on the uh, brittle aspect of it. I know big portfolio of products. I mean, we could go down the line and start talking about a bunch of them, but we don't have time for that. So we're going to be seeing tassels probably somewhere at the end of the week. If you yeah. aren't already. Here's some of the biggest questions I'm getting right now. Uh, let's start with fertigation and, and applying fertilizer to the corn crop. We look at roughly 70% of the nitrogen use is prior to tassel. Should we continue applying fertilizer through the pivots or, you know, wide drop machines or however you're working that avenue? Should we get that all on before tassel or should we save some of that for later? And can I fertigate through pollination? There's always been a little concern about disrupting pollination. Well, I will tell you right now, through fertigation, you're not going to disrupt pollination. So I am fine running fertilizer still through the pivot all the way through pollination, tasseling, not a concern. The one thing I am concerned with, though, is the weather in general. So if we've got really high heat and low humidity, evaporation is quite a bit higher. And we can have less utilization of some of that nitrogen, especially if we're just doing those eight to 10 gallon per circle applications. Uh, You you know, that is a little bit more vulnerable to evaporation that we may not be utilizing as much. If fertigation is a planned program for you and you're doing more than, you know, one or two shots is just kind of supplemental, keep cranking that out and maybe save the last 30 to 50 pounds for getting into that milk early dose stage of corn and, and put it on then. If you're just the maybe one or two passes of 30 pounds each, and you're trying to time that out best, I would for sure get one on now into this tassel as we're getting into this tassel time frame if we haven't done it already. And then again, I'd save that second one for when we're kind of getting into that milk early dose stage of corn. Yeah, the reason I like that is when we get into late milk or early dough stage of corn, that is where the plant is still really susceptible to ear tip back and kernel abortion or or depth. Once we get past that and we start really getting into dough, the tip back piece of it is pretty well done. But prior to that, you are at risk of both tip back and lower grain fill in general. So that's mm-hmm. why I like to really have that on before we get into that dough stage, that mid dough stage where you're getting, you know, good dry matter into that kernel. Yeah, you, you, you're exactly right. You know, when you get in that brown silk, early blister, whatever, it, it's pretty vulnerable to tip back. And we've all yeah. seen it with cloudy days. You know, we get a, four days of clouds and then that tip back occurs because it just not photosynthesizing without the sun out there, but yeah, granted, I think that I think this year is going to be we're going to have sun every day. 
So well, knock on wood, you know, and it's funny that you bring that up because I just had this conversation the other day about, okay, if we get a bunch of smoke cover in that most vulnerable time where the corn needs to photosynthesize and fill those grain, those grain kernels, what have we seen in the past that can help offset that? And this isn't scientific. This isn't any real research that's been done, you know, measuring light mm-hmm. intensity or whatever. This is just some observations that I personally have seen. But a lot of that stuff needs to be done now to help protect it in August if that would come up. Well, we don't know if it is or not, right? Mm-hmm. But a fungicide application at Tassel has been proven to slow respiration. So it's not burning as much sugar all through hot nights and or cloudy smoke covered conditions. So that's one thing. But then the other thing too is keeping up on nutrients that are really critical to chlorophyll production or sugar translocation, so like potassium. Potassium is extremely important. Boron, bringing that sugar movement around with the lack of photosynthesis. Sulfur, chloride, yeah. chloride, yeah. you know, something, copper, those micros that aren't thought of as, you know, as much and needed in very little um, packages throughout the year are cool. very important in that grain fill piece under stressful or lack of photosynthesis. Keeping that plant as healthy as you can to eliminate the stress during that critical period is so key, isn't it? Um, it you know, so you, key. You mentioned fung- fungicides going on, and I always think of a hot, dry, sunny year as insects are going to be up, disease is going to be down. You know, it's just going to be one of those years that a wet year, disease is up, insects are down. But and the guy goes, I don't think I'm going to have much for fungus this year. It's going to be hot and sunny every day. But the component of that plant health of that fungicide going on is is uh, a very big benefit for corn too. It's just it protects it, gives it some plant health, gets it through that phase. And anything we can do to help that corn in that vulnerable stage is pretty important. It, it's very important, and you're right on. Especially this year. I mean. The plant canopy is probably as clean as I've ever seen it at this point in time. The leaf themselves have been very dry. Even with irrigation, you got to think they're, you know, the majority of that doesn't stay wet long. Breeding for gray leaf spot, northern corn leaf blight, common Uh, rust. Bacterial leaf streak has been non-existent in most fields. I mean, it's... Yeah. So all of these things, you're asking yourself, have you ever seen it? before this clean and will fungicide still pay well yes we yes we have so if, if you want to look at pioneer research 2000 unfarmed trials between 2007 and 2020 average 7.4 bushel per acre with a fungicide application at tassel it's almost seven and a half bushel over the course of uh, 13 years on average and out of those 13 years we've had all kinds of different weather conditions and a lot of those years have been very minimal disease to this point. So then I get the question, well, why would I do it at Tassel if I don't have any disease pressure at this time? And it all comes back to, again, protecting that plant through the most vulnerable part. And that is that blister, milk, early dough stage. Those are the times that you can lose the most bushels, kernel abortion and uh, lack of dry matter in, into your grain protected at that time then i get the question though but i want longer residual yeah. I, I need i need it out there for late in the year and i will tell you right now with my experience with southern rust coming in late in the seasons we have seen that in certain years like this year would be 
maybe an optimal year for that where it's hot and it's dry and a lot of southern winds coming in but there was still more bushel return with a tassel application than there was when we were spraying it at, at that dough stage to kind of protect us for stock quality late my suggestion is always vt year in and year out if we get high pressure of southern rust and we're worried about stock quality and harvestability then you spray for that later on in the season. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you protect that and you don't have that inch or two of uh, kernel abortion shrink back. Right. With that help, that, that makes a big deal. That, that sets you up. Then when the kernels are set, they're not going to abort back anymore. They're going to fill. Correct. Yeah. And, and so we're, we're looking at two different things. We're, t- we're, we're looking at increasing bushels with a fungicide, slowing respiration, protecting from disease, creating better photosynthesis. And then we're talking about stock quality and harvestability, two separate things um, and, and finding the consistency with a fungicide application. Yep. But we, can, we, can't skimp, we can't skimp in years like this either on just late season nutrient and uptake. I was telling you about root growth looks as good as it's, it has it's been in a long time. And the better the roots, obviously, the more uptake we can get efficiency, but we also have to keep that in suspension and available throughout the season. The roots, when they get into reproductive stage on the corn roots, I imagine they will be slowing down and they'll eventually be done. You know, you figure reproductive time, the roots are what you got, you got. You know, there's a little bit of regeneration, but it's uh, if it happens to get fed on the rootworm, there'll be a bunch of hairy root regeneration wherever they fed. But for the most part, the roots quit growing and everything starts going, flowing to the ear and everything. So you're, what you have in the soil profile is what you're going to be able to pull from. So having, having that good root system, like you mentioned earlier, is so important this year. Yeah, it is. And just feeding that and knowing where your roots are at. You know, most of the time we talk about pulling from deep down. And, and that's important, right? Water utilization. Water is extremely important. And we want to pull it out of that low, lower soil profile. But we also have to remember where is the amount of nutrients at in your soil profile. When we're taking soil samples, usually 10 to 12 inches. And that's what we're basing a lot of our nutrients on. So yeah, if, if the top 10 inches is dry and or compacted, then you're not utilizing that nutrient uptake of, of all those nutrients that are in that soil. You know, you're pulling from the solution lower. So I just encourage you guys always to, you know, feed a little bit in the top. Don't overfeed it, but you got to keep that top healthy. One aspect of, you know, I, I agree with you on that earlier fungicide application and, and doing that. Just be careful. Of course, we all talk it all the time. Keep the NIS or some of those surfactants out of the fungicide mix when you're spraying it so you don't get arrested ear syndrome. Yeah. So yeah, arrested ear syndrome is something that you can see prior to the tassels coming out if mainly surfactants and mainly if you're doing ground rigs or something with low water volume Mm -hmm. and and blowing it straight into that oral. So that is a big caution. Anything prior to the tassel emergence or silk emergence uh, really should not have a surfactant of any type with it. Aerial application of just straight fungicide, extremely safe. Haven't seen any issues yeah. with that. And, and then the other thing, again, is the timing aspect. Everybody wants to do the least amount of applications possible. And I get that. But here's the thing that's showing up. You know, Western bean cutworm, big pest for us here in central Nebraska. 
a lot along the river valley. I mean, we're already seeing egg masses, you know, upwards of 8% in fields and we're, you know, two or three leaves away from tassel. So we really have to ask ourselves again, do I just want to mix insecticide with my fungicide and spray it here when the tassels come out? Or do I really need to address this insect issue now? And for certain situations, we have to address that insect situation first, then worry about your fungicide application. A lot of times those play together well from a timing Mm -hmm. standpoint, but certain years they don't. Actually, we were catching our first Western bean cutworm moths over a week ago. So it was the end of June that we were actually seeing that flight. Last year, the first moths we were catching were on the 8th of July. Oh, wow. Yeah. So not only is the corn ahead, so we're also about a leaf, uh, I would say about seven to nine days ahead of where we were at last year. So are the insects, all GDU driven, you know, so they're matching Mm -hmm. that back up and we have to be prepared for that. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, typically, logically, you'd think, yeah, I would. I'd love to throw some insecticide in my fungicide or throw some fungicide into my insecticide, do it in one pass. It's beautiful, but sometimes those things don't coincide. I mean, you just gotta. They don't. So you really have to focus on what your pest is, um, the timing, you know, grasshoppers have been crazy this year. Some fields are highly infested with grasshoppers. And as soon as those silks come out or the tassels, even as soon as the tassels come out, those grasshoppers go up, they start clipping branches off losing pollen shed they come down they start taking silks out well you really need to address that grasshopper issue before they're clipping silks and tassels well that doesn't really coincide with a fungicide application does it mike not at all i mean it's not close you're right so those are things to be aware of right now and and again this is about this is about raising and, and the best crop that we can to create profit too. So we have to understand the economics of it. And we can't go out every week with a different application of something. So -hmm. we have to start understanding what is your biggest yield robber. And I'm going to address that. And if I can catch some of these other smaller yield robbers at the same time, then I'll do that to keep my profit level up and my cost down. How much of a fan are you of identifying fields with the greatest potential and, and taking care of those other fields that you might have had a poor stand on or whatever happened to it. It just doesn't have the potential and you're going to manage that differently. <laughs> and maybe, yeah. maybe you'd try to get by with that one pass. I don't know. Profit potential. That's what it comes yeah. down to. I mean, it is you, you, we, as, as farmers, agronomists, and just people in general want to bring the bottom up whenever we can. We, so we want to, we, we want, even the fields that may not have the biggest potential we want to bring them up, help them along. Right. Yeah. But a lot of times, a lot of times we're putting good money into a bad situation when in reality we've evaluated fields to a point that we know have some of the highest profit potential. Those are the ones that you should focus on first. That's where your money should be going and not just saying, well, man, it looks so good. I don't need to do anything to it, but these other ones don't look so good. So I need to do more to them. You got those high potential fields that came up even. You got a great stand out there and they're off to the races. That's the field that makes sense for possibly two applications of a fungicide. I mean, that's that's where your money's going to be made at. That's the yield potential. Yep. That's the one you tissue sample, you 
feed late nitrogen too and, and take care of it because that'll be the one that returns. Protect, protect the investment. Now, yeah. we'd never want to give up on any field. We, you don't want to just give up on any field, but you have to manage inputs based off of what you started out with. That's why stand establishment is so important. Mm-hmm. Stand establishment, early nutrient uptake, and then insects, then fungicides. You got to look at what you can afford to do on what acre. I, I'm not a guy that ever goes out and just says, spray every acre for everything and protect it all the same. There's different <laughs> levels of profit to be had. And, and mm-hmm. you got to watch that. Everybody wants to farm every acre the same. I get it. Simplicity and, and time is valuable, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it's about doing the very best you can and knowing that exact acre. I mean, we are getting down to farming sub acre. You know, we, we're putting planting prescriptions together for small parts of fields. We're putting fertilizer prescriptions together for small parts of fields. We start out managing them all differently. We select hybrids for specific soil type, water infiltration, fertility management. We select all of that on such a small scale. Why at this point in time, then would we treat every acre the same? Yeah, exactly. Ask ask yourself that question. A good example might be is, I know we don't have a lot of dry land acres in the area, but we do have some dry land. And, you know, there's going to be a point in this summer, we're going to have to maybe make it tough decision of this probably isn't going to silk or, or or maybe pollinate and hit the nick and you got to make management decisions now i take my resources and i go pump it into the acres that got pivots on them and and uh, we can put more resources in there and get better yields on those acres too so uh, and or completely opposite of that some of the dry land is the highest profitability acre that we have and if we caught some decent rains and yeah, where, yeah. you know, seed inputs were lower, fertilizer was lower. And, you know, the last few years, we made management decisions to add more fertilizer to some dry land crops, add some fungicide applications. And I tell you what, the profit margin on that was significantly higher than where we were at on some irrigated acres that were pretty marginal to start out with. Mm-hmm. So we got to have, got to have that mindset. And that be adjusting to what mother nature gives you as far as rainfall and stuff and, and yep. make management decisions yep rainfall and sunlight from here on out producing sugar and keeping the plant fed how about soybeans what's going on in beans these days sure we can't go to another topic <laughs> you know so far they've been beans growing in the field and and i'm actually going to go out this afternoon and take cam- canopy closure uh ratings on uh, varieties on that but uh you know they're blooming they're, they're blooming. Got a few. They're blooming. So, so here's, I, and a lot of the reason why we couldn't do a podcast in June was uh, I was extremely busy evaluating soybean fields and honestly taking a lot of service calls on slow growth, slow emergence, uh, herbicide injury. We had a lot of widespread herbicide injury this year and guys are asking why. And I'll just sum it up quickly to what I saw. A lot of pre-emerge herbicides for soybeans did not get applied in a timely manner this year because the season was somewhat delayed at planting time. So there wasn't a lot of pre-herbicide applications going on, uh, you know, prior to started planting corn. The day that we hit that we could start planting corn, everybody went to planting corn instead of spraying your soybean ground your two weeks, three weeks, month prior to planting especially using certain chemistries. I won't name those. You can think of whatever they are. So what happened was we went straight from corn planting to straight into bean planting. As soon as the beans got planted, 
then we started spraying our herbicide applications right over the top. A lot of our herbicides are very concentrated in that surface area and, and they have to be incorporated with moisture to work down and dilute themselves into that soil zone. Okay. Mm -hmm. Planting, spraying. Then we finally, we get a decent rain, a widespread rain. At the time, everybody's going, oh, this is perfect. The beans are just cracking out. We didn't have to run pivots for crusting. We didn't have to run pivots to help beans out of the ground. This rain was perfect, except for it put all of that chemistry into solution at the very most vulnerable time for beans as they were cracking through the surface. Yeah, they're just a big old concentrated band that just, oh, there it is. Yeah, so if we had, if we had fields that were having a lot of soil around them, a lot of exposed soil, uh, we were seeing the highest severity. A lot of the beans that are no-tilled into a lot of residue got through it a little bit better, but they were slower growth too. They just have it that way, but that residue uh, kept a lot of that herbicide from going into quick suspension. Um, but mm -hmm. the strip-till acres, the ridge-till, you know, the conventional till, a lot of those did struggle right off the bat. So saw a lot of widespread herbicide injury and slow growth. And the funny thing about it, though, is a lot of guys, you don't notice it until that first trifoliate comes out. So when the cotyledons are out, if you had severe herbicide injury, you would see stand reduction, which we didn't see a ton of that. We weren't getting, you know, guys weren't getting concerned because the beans were coming up, unifoliates, you know, the cotyledons come out, unifoliates come out. And the unifoliates are a little small, but that first trifoliate starts coming out and it looks like crap, you know, and then the mm -hmm. next growing point is shooting auxiliary buds out of the unifoliates. And, and all of a sudden now you start getting concerns, which you're now three weeks after the time when this actually happened. So then that's where you get the question. The growers are like, what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. And it, the fortunate thing about beans is they're pretty elastic as far as being able to adapt. And we all know bean yields are basically built in August. I mean, late August, just let them survive until August and then let them fill and everything. And I know right now in July, we're going through the vulnerable stage of the R1, R2, R3, and beans will abort, you know, up to 70% of their blossoms or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. it's, they, they abort a lot of blossoms. So we got to keep them happy as they're uh, setting pods and everything, but uh, it, it is built on you know, bean size, the elastic ability, like you mentioned, kicking out auxiliary growing points on each side and making them bushier and filling in gaps. Uh, beans can do a lot. Yeah, they, they really can. And one thing I noticed because of that this year, we have a lot of extra branching. So I had the question the other day from, from an agronomist too, that really sparked something inside me. So I researched it a little bit more, um, even called up less, you know, Coleman, who was Coleman, one, yeah. of, one of our very first podcast guests on beans and, and asked him, is branching more genetic or environmental driven on our beans? And the answer, and I'll summarize it, is, you know, it's a higher percent genetic that will let you have branching, but certain environmental conditions can cause those extra branches. They have the ability to set nodes and blooms and pods. So if we can get a bean somewhat tricked into saying that those branches are just as productive as the main stem at certain times, that's how we can increase more blooms and pods. Because 
we all know soybeans are light sensitive. They're, they're driven by daylight hours. And we know that a plant can only produce so many nodes over a certain amount of days. So everybody keeps asking themselves, well, how do I create more nodes to create more blooms, to create more pods, to create more bushels? Well, you start planting earlier. That was one big thing that we talked about. Yeah. You want to increase nodes, you plant earlier. The other thing, though, with this branching is if we can keep beans happy right now, R1, R2, with maybe some different strategies, some different management that isn't common in commercial bean growing, uh, like some extra fertilizer, not nitrogen, not nitrogen, but products like potassium, sulfur, zinc. Can we trick that bean into creating more nodes and more pod set on those branches that we have now created from auxiliary buds early on? That's the question. Yeah. And I, I have never seen a year where I, see, I look at varieties and how much branching is on them. Like you said, they are really kicking out auxiliary branches in all directions this year, which I think will translate. I, if we got sunshine, we got good fertility, we got water and, and just pour it to them. I think we are going to have some nice yields. Uh, the yield potentials there anyhow, as far as locations for pods. Yeah, because conventional mindset of uh, doing extra to beans is always R4, R4 time frame. That's if you want to do something extra to beans, that's kind of been it. Fungicide, uh, fertigation, you know, any type of foliar feed, micros, whatever. That's, that's kind of a common practice. I would say now uncommon or something that to think about is because of all of that branching due to some of the herbicide injury that we've seen, earlier applications of some of these products, like we mentioned, may give us the ability to create more nodes, pods, blooms, et cetera, off of that main stem. I would be very, very careful though, applying any type of nitrogen still. We, we don't wanna do that, but these other products are something maybe to look into. Unconventional, just something to talk about for guys to think mm -hmm. about. What can I do to my beans right now? Because really, we just water them. We let them bloom on their own. Uh, we try to keep insects from clipping them. And then we get creative around R4 after we get a high percentage of kind of pod set, pod fill going. Mm -hmm. Well, the guys in the South and, and other high yielding soybean guys, what have they been trying to do over the years? Mimic growth regulator responses by shredding beans, defoliating beans, and trying to create auxiliary growing points to add more pods, blooms, et cetera. Environment did it first this year with a little bit of the situation that we were in. So now let's, let's unconventionally let's, let's think about how to capture that, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I was talking to a, a university a disease a specialist the other day, and I was asking her about white mold. What is the potential for white mold this year? Because, you know, it's, it's coming up. We need to treat, you know, the white mold will come in through the flower buds that are desiccating and, and done with pollination and it'll come in. And it, so you got to be putting your fungicide on. And she thought the white mold pressure would be probably lower this year just because of all the sunshine we have and the slower canopy and, and things like that. She thought it might be less than normal. With that said, though, and, and with the bean price, does it make sense to treat for white mold? Uh, yeah, proactively. Well, I just had this conversation on Friday, even when we looked at last year. So if you remember last July and August, 
-hmm. it was hot and dry. We had significant rainfall early last year. And then middle of June, it was just tremendously hot, windy. Then end of June, we did cool down, caught a couple rains before the 4th of July, and then just hot and dry. And in my geography, we had a lot of white mold still last year. Yeah. You you know, so it comes back to, again, every field's going to be a little different, but think of the history that you've had and be prepared to adapt to the environment. You know, in theory, hot and dry should be less white mold. Well, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you got overhead irrigation in, in narrow rows, especially drilled or something like that, I think that environment's pretty conducive to just creating yeah. that micro environment in there. The humidity's there. You're you're probably going to have white mold. Even pressure. heavy residue. That that old corn residue. I mean, you see that, and it just gets wet, and it's holding that moisture at the soil surface, and that white mold comes on pretty quick. So you know, back to some facts on fungicide on beans. I me personally never been a huge advocate of fungicide and beans. I've just seen way too much inconsistency on overall yields and what it could bring. And and that's talking, you know, 10, 15 years ago, all the way up till now. The last four years, though, it seems like we've been getting a lot more eastern environment uh, coming out to Mm -hmm. central and western Nebraska. And for whatever reason, fungicides have been paying more. I remember I actually, uh, it was 2017, sent some samples into, into the pathology labs, you know, at harvest time, wondering why some of these beans weren't performing. And they came back positive for uh, phenopsis. And, yeah. you know, and this uh, complex of disease mixed in with anthracnose. And, and honestly, I was kind of caught off guard thinking, what, you know, what is this? Where did, where did this fungus come from? How does it work? And uh, the UNL lady said, this is the first sample we've ever had east or west of Grand Island you started to see this change of what fungicides could do, we are getting close to a three bushel positive response 82% of the time on beans now. Yeah. Considering the commodity prices now and what we've seen as history, as far as how they pay return, I think it's no brainer. You know, you just put it on. Now the question is, is you do wait for R3 to put it on or do you wait to, for the disease to show up or what is your opinion on that? Yeah, my, my opinion still kind of that late R3, early R4 is a great time for a fungicide application. One thing that we have seen though in our pioneer trials is, so the average yield response has been two and a half bushel 82% of the time. But when we added an insecticide, we increased that to 5.3 bushel 94% of the time. Wow. Yeah. So again, it comes back to a fungicide by itself. Yes, you can get that positive return, but is it bringing that synergistic effect with an insecticide, keeping it in a canopy longer, maybe keeping it on the leaf surface longer, you know, mixing it in with the surfactant of the fungicide and providing more value in the insecticide piece from those blooms, uh, late blooms not being clipped, uh, pods not being fed on, you know, all of those little things start adding up. It really takes till about July 1st before our bean crop starts looking like a bean crop, like it really should. Mm -hmm. And the big leaves coming out and the foliage going and the pods setting, you know, prior to that, like you said, it's keep them alive, keep them weed free, just make sure they're not going backwards. Yeah. You know, some of the toughest years we had for yield is when the pivot tires were closed or covered in June. 
they just got too much growth. They had too yeah. much early rain. They got that in, environment for disease, like you mentioned, all the pod and stem blights, the anthracnose, phenopsis, whatever. It was just all in there. And this year, they're they're clean. I mean, yeah. it should be fairly clean out there. And and now now we can pour the resources to them and help them set those pods and keep those pods and and fill them out as much as we can out there. Yeah. One thing to address real quick, though, when we were talking about fungicides also, you know, frog eye leaf spot has been a disease that has been more widespread in Nebraska. And even last year in, in our environment where it was dry, but yet we're pumping a lot of water through the pivots. Uh, we saw more frog eye leaf spot last year than we've seen in a long time. And that is a proven yield limiting disease in soybeans. It's also, mm -hmm. though, been shown to have resistance to your standard strobulent fungicides. So if we are trying to target that frog eye leaf spot, we need to make sure we understand what type of fungicide chemistry we're using to, to get the best results. So growers need to make That's, sure that they're aware of that. That is a good point, Adam. And, and we do rate our varieties for frog eye resistance, not saying they're going to be immune to them, but there, there's different levels of susceptibility to frog eye. So you know, and, and don't test me on which varieties are good and which ones are poor. But, oh, come uh, on, Mike, just off the top of your head. Why don't you tell us what they are? Yeah, but uh, being aware, if you have a, a high yielding one that's maybe more susceptible and that environment's there, boy, yeah, it, it'll pay off to take care of that frog eye. I, I know the, the equipment applications that we've done earlier, the, the planting, the uh, cultivating, or the side dressing, and then the spraying, you know, those are all actionable items that show pretty immediate results. Those, those are things that we like to do, right? Keep the corn clean, mm -hmm. keep it growing good, keep it healthy, fix whatever issues we have um, to get to this very point. But I really encourage guys now, like the applications that they do now and what they take care of over the next two weeks don't have immediate results they don't have that showing effect of we accomplish something until harvest time. So over the next two weeks, the, the fungicide applications, the insecticide applications, the more nutrients going on, fertigation, leaf sampling, those things don't have immediate effects that you visually see that make it gratifying to put the money into. But trust me, those applications will be gratifying at harvest time. That's when you get to see the final results of what you did. Because other than that, right now, you don't see much change in the crop until you get that grain fill and that tip back going. And then you're asking yourself, what could I have done? Mm -hmm. Well, you should That's have done it now or next week, not when it starts doing it. You're looking at the after effects of what you could have done, should have done or whatever. So yeah, yeah it's, it's very key point. On corn, there there are some areas where guys are limited by the amount of air, inches of irrigation water they have available. Yeah, there, I I know I have a brother that's having to make the tough decision. I've I've got so much of this irrigation coming out of the canal systems or whatever, and, and I can or I can only pump so many irrigation inches. Boy, when we're going through the silk kernel set time, that is a time you just can't save on water. You got to give it the water then and get those kernels set and. Yes. Uh, and then, and then as the kernels are set, you know, make your judgment on how you're going to finish your water out there. But if we don't get rain, there will be some guys having to make that tough decision. You know, where do I take these 12 inches of water or whatever I have available and then allocate them out for the rest of the year? 
Yeah, absolutely. And in my in my mind, again, what you just said, um, we have to have somewhat of a reserve profile going into tassel because we can't physically pump enough to offset yeah. daily use. So we have to have some sort of reserve, but we don't want too much of a reserve or, or waste that water. Because like you said, up to uh, you know, R4 in corn is very, very critical on water uptake and filling the kernels. Again, we need the largest and highest amount of kernels possible to create yield. So that's the most important part. But with that being said, the final finish of irrigation, that very final piece can almost have one of the highest returns on your investment for watering. And that's that last inch and a half to two inches to get to black layer. What I look at is a, a water strategy of finding a, a happy medium to get a reserve now, pump hard from pollination through milk as much as you can and manage that. Then actually, when you get into kind of that hard dough stage, you can let off a little bit and save some of those inches. Don't worry about having a reserve towards the end. Worry about feeding the crop the last two inches. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is don't overwater to make that plant try to really grab that three foot water zone and let your top go dry. Feed those last two inches late as you're getting into that that black layer time frame. Ear will flex in, in girth and length, but also the kernels will flex in size and depth and everything. And, and we can see a lot of kernel flex then. Yeah, kernel flex, test weight, finish that out. Um, that's that's really important. And we've seen that the last few years too, that we, we shut these pivots off a little too early and we're expecting that plant to really pull from those deeper profiles, way less efficient. Uh, we are just not getting the results that we can if we are watering a little bit later. Well, we talked about a lot of things. We Adam. did. We did. We, and it's, this is a great comeback show. I sense the optimism from our call, our talk today about, you know, there is a lot of potential in this crop out there. And, and one nice thing about being in Nebraska is we have center pivots and we can water. And most guys have 90% of their corn acres or more on pivots. Yeah. And with that sun shining every day, that's an engine driving that photosynthesis every day. Yeah. We can grow a lot of corn. Yeah. And uh, just let's just do that. Yeah. I'm extremely excited to at this point so that we haven't been able to do this for quite a while just because of a lot of the weather issues that we've had over the last few years. And I'm out. I mean, to this point, I've had very little hail across the geography. But to this point, over the last four years, We've had some significant windstorms in, in June even that are really tearing up leaves and twisting stalks and making irregular growth. We've had a lot of uh, water and floods that have really mm -hmm. compacted soils, flushed out nutrients, really issues with root systems. Knock on wood, and I hate to always say this, but to this point, we are probably going to have the opportunity to see true genetic differences in our portfolio outside of handling just weather events. So we are truly at this point getting to go head to head on some of the yield genetics of like our new corn revolution products that are getting an opportunity to really showcase the top end yield potentials. Knock on wood, 
you know, barring any weather events. Because the last few years, all we really get to do is evaluate a product on how well its diversity of environments is, how it can handle so many different things and reach the the output that we needed. This year, I'm excited for some of these head-to-head, just flat-out yield, show the alpha genetic capabilities. you'll, You'll see the genetics that got that extra gear. It's got Absolutely. water, it's got nutrients, and it's got all kinds of sunshine. You'll see that extra gear. 1359, you know, that's a product, I think, that has that extra gear. I think it's starting to showcase it. Areas last year where we didn't have weather extremes, it showcased it. And it was even, it was a, you know, I hate to say it or put it this way, but it was a down year in overall yields in general across the state of Nebraska last year. You know, it wasn't record-setting yields by any means. And guys can play it on, you know, we can put it down and say because of diverse environments. Yes and no. I mean, it was just Mother Nature didn't give it to us, not just because of storms, just she didn't give it to us. This year, it looks a little different. It certainly does. Certainly does. So we'll be in the field helping with these decisions too, Adam. We'll be continue to look at products and look at things. and Absolutely. So the other part of this too, any of the listeners out here, okay, Mike's really active on Twitter and follow him. Mike, what's your handle? At Ordeen MI. At Ordeen MI. Yep. And I'm at, what am I? At Banks underscore A Banks, which everybody yes, gives me are. crap about that, but that was originally <laughs> never, what it never changed it. That's just what it yeah. came up at. So follow yeah. us on Twitter. You're going to see some more information coming through that way. Hit the like button on this podcast so you can get some new updates when they come out. I was at a couple customer events and the last one I just hosted, I was really excited. So I, I if you guys know, I, I like to talk when I get excited and when there's good things going on, I just no, love to share that no. information, Mike. <laughs> and, and I had a lot of those customers afterwards tell me though how much they like the podcast because they could always hit stop if they were tired of me talking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, that's great. But at the customer <laughs> events, they're just like, man, you just keep going and going until somebody says stop. I said, I got a lot to share. I, I got a lot to share. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the future of our crop. Uh, the Pioneer lineup is, I mean, what I have seen to this point and the diversity that we have, I've never been so excited because you can look at, you can see so many differences in each product. And if you're really good and listen to that crop, it will tell you where it wants to go. And then you can put it where it wants to go and you can make your customer very successful doing that. Yep. That is, that is the uh, pioneer agronomy message right there in a nutshell. Absolutely. Well, let's wrap this up. Kicking dirt, Mike and Adam, Mike, love to be back on the show. I mean, it's just, it feels good. So kicking dirt. Yeah. Thanks everybody. I mean, let's wrap this bad boy up. No reason to drag it out. We've said what we said. Have a great day. You bet.